Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, what a song. What a song reminding us of the fact that you are for us who are in Christ. You are no longer against us. You're no longer in battle array against us because of your Son, Jesus. Already we have sought to glorify your name through these lyrics and these songs. Lord, may they be the expression of our hearts. Father, all of this this morning is for you. It's for the worship and adoration of our great God, our great Creator, for all that you've done, and because you are worthy of all praise and honor and adoration from our hearts. Father, this morning, Lord, though we rejoice in so much uh, blessings that you bestowed upon us, we also recognize that you have, Lord, sent trials, allowed trials in our lives and tests. Many of our brethren, Father, even amongst us this morning or watching by live stream, are certainly hurting and experiencing physical ailments and sicknesses, and we pray for them, Father, that you would sustain them, that you would bring them to full health so that they would continue to serve you. Father, strengthen their faith. May they draw near to you in these circumstances that they are experiencing right now. Father, I pray for our country. I continue to pray that you would move in the hearts of leaders on the local, regional, and national level, that, Father, your gospel would be advanced. Your gospel would be progressed through the true church, true Christian church, true gospel preaching, and that true word-driven ministry of the word would take place even today and this week, and not only in our country, but all over the world. Father, we see what's taking place, uh, rumors of wars and earthquakes and so much that is happening. Father, we think about the people of Haiti and the Dominican Republic even a little bit, but especially Haiti that... Lord, you would comfort people there, comfort our brethren who are there. Continue to, um, Lord, strengthen the church, the Christian church in Haiti to, Lord, um, mobilize for the purpose of caring for needs there, that, Lord, they might have many opportunities for the progress of the gospel. Father, we pray for, uh, Lord, things that are taking place in other regions of the world like Afghanistan. Father, our hearts go out, especially to our brethren who are there, many of whom are experiencing persecution and opposition, Lord, explicitly, and many of them we don't even hear about on the news. Lord, we pray for them. We pray that you would use them in a mighty way to boldly proclaim the gospel in word and then by means of their example that may they have a powerful impact in that region of the world. Father, help us to remember those who are persecuted, to remember those who are ill-treated, that we may never become so comfortable in our country that we forget about our brethren in other places who don't have these freedoms that we do to even worship publicly. Father, help us to be grateful. I pray that this morning we might rejoice in the fact that we not only get to sing and fellowship, but we get to hear your word. Because when your Bible is opened, you speak. So Lord, help us to have soft and tender hearts, to be teachable, to be humble listeners. And not only listening with one ear and not the other, but Father, may it move us in our affections May your truth inform our thinking, move our affections. Lord, even catapult us and our will to live out your truth and loving obedience and grateful obedience because we love you, because we are grateful for all that you've done so that we might have a powerful influence all over the particular areas that you have us, context of influence, whether in our home, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Lord, use us on mission for the sake of the gospel and use the preaching and the application of your word this morning to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We continue to move our way along this wonderful gospel. I have been so impacted by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus by his life. Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 31. And like always, if you're able to stand with me, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word in honor of God's Word. Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 31. Always remember that this is God's Word. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself would deny me three times. 
But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, a couple of questions at the beginning. How many of you, let's just get a little survey here. How many of you growing up in school loved exams or tests? Let's get a show of hands. Yeah, very few, right? Okay, and a follow-up question. How many of you excelled at test-taking in school? Ah, all right, all right. Hopefully you're being honest, okay? You know, I was not a good test-taker in school growing up, and I certainly didn't excel at test-taking. For some reason or another, I would do quite well with written uh, exams or written papers, um, that they would assign during the course of a semester or a year. I would do pretty well with that. I would do pretty well with ongoing assignments that were already in the syllabus and just enjoyed those. But I was not a good test taker at all. I mean, test taking wasn't my thing. From my perspective, my view on test taking was that they were a necessary evil by mean teachers, right? You just wanted to cause me pain and all of that. What's the use, I would think? What's the point of of tests? What is the point? They're not even a good gauge of how you're really doing. Well, eventually and thankfully, as the Lord does with all of us, I wised up just a bit. And I realized that tests really had a good, helpful function in school. That they allowed these exams or these tests, these quizzes, even pop quizzes, allowed both the teacher and the students by and large, to get a good gauge of what was being retained in the classroom. And so I realized, you know what? By and large, it's not that teachers are trying to make my life miserable. It's not that they're trying to ruin our lives. Most teachers, in fact, by and large, are just wanting to get students, have students grow in knowledge and grow and being effective in society. And so it was good to learn that lesson about the importance of tests, even in school growing up as it pertains to our education. And you know, it's not too different, beloved, in the, in the Christian life, is it? It's not too different for us. There's a parallel there to the Christian life. Because you see, our master teacher, our good and wise heavenly father, uses tests, uses trials in our lives for our good. He uses trials in our lives or tests to, to help us wise up, to grow up in the Christian life as his followers, to a greater commitment, to strengthen our faith, to to deepen our love for him. And so it's profitable as Christians even to embrace the tests that God brings to our lives. One of the verses that has been such an encouragement to me along these lines of the importance and profitability of tests in the Christian life is James chapter 1 and verse 2, which says this to brethren, to Christians, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or tests, knowing, in other words, because you know from experience, that's the sense of that, because you know from experience, what? That the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, God uses tests or trials to grow our spiritual muscles, if you will, so that we might be able to endure and run the race of the Christian life to win, so that we might be fully efficient, fully competent for every good work that He has prepared for us to do beforehand. And then 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you, here it is, for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now Peter's saying, what's the matter with you Christians? They're beginning to experience the beginning signs of opposition and persecution. He says, what's the matter with you guys? Eventually he says, Christ set the model and the pattern and the example for suffering, and we follow in his steps. So what's the matter with you guys? Why are you acting as if some strange thing were happening to you? And then he says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of His glory, he says this, You may rejoice with exultation. Peter says there is an anticipatory effect 
that tests have in your life. In other words, they, they cause us to long for the future glory that is to come when Jesus returns. Amen? So there's this anticipatory effect that tests have in the Christian life, even opposition and persecution. And so you see, there's a sanctifying, profitable profitability that tests and trials have for us as believers, as Christians, to become more and more like Jesus. Now, obviously, more often than not, as, as we survey our Christian life, we don't always see this in the moment, the profitability of tests or trials. We see this in hindsight, more often than not, if your experience is the same as mine. But it's true, nevertheless, that God-ordained tests are beneficial for us as followers of Christ. They are. And well, as we look at this passage we see a great test in the lives of Jesus' disciples. You see, a test that, that though initially they failed miserably, proved beneficial in the long run for Peter and Jesus' disciples later on, after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus passes on the baton to these apostles who, like, like champions now, lead the church of Jesus Christ after Jesus ascends to heaven. And we see that in their lives. But here we find just part of the journey for them. Part of the learning process. It's a test of discipleship that we see here. A test of discipleship. And it happened, if you remember, during Thursday into Friday evening of Passion Week. Jesus and his disciples, as we saw the last couple of weeks, have just wrapped up the infamous Passover meal where a number of things have happened, if you remember. According to John chapter 13, it was in the upper room where Jesus puts on the apron of a servant and he washes the, the disciples' feet, most likely prompted by a dispute between the disciples about which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus says, let me show you what true greatness is all about. It's about serving one another. It's about laying down your lives for one another. And he shows them that. Also in the upper room is where Jesus predicts his betrayal. And he reveals to them who will betray him, namely Judas Iscariot. And then in the aftermath of that, Judas, indwelt by Satan, shoots out to go betray the Lord Jesus. He has already planning this, been planning this all along. Then there was the actual Passover meal, where Jesus, as we saw last week, instituted the, the first ever communion under the, old the, the new covenant as we know it, where he instituted the Lord's Supper. And there was also the upper room discourse during the Passover meal where Jesus comforted his disciples because they're already beginning to feel the, the weight of his suffering and his death that is impending. And so Jesus comforts his disciples and then he prays for them in the, in the high priestly prayer. In John chapter 17, he prays for them that they would be strengthened, that they would endure in the Christian life. All of this happens in the upper room. It's been an emotionally packed time as we've seen, full of twists and turns, all kinds of twists and turns, up and down in hours and hours of this Passover meal. And now it says in verse 26, if you notice, that after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In other words, they depart from the upper room in the city of Jerusalem. They cross the Kidron Valley to the east, and they head up to the Mount of Olives. The parallel account of John chapter 18, verse 1, says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His, with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which He entered with His disciples. We know about this garden, don't we? It's the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a, a garden located on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And listen, Judas Iscariot knows exactly the location of this particular garden, unlike the upper room in the city of Jerusalem. Now listen, as we walk through this passage, we glean some important lessons on true discipleship. Some important lessons on true discipleship. And we learn, brothers and sisters, that we are not so different than the Lord's disciples. Following after Jesus is not a walk in a field of daisies, is it? We've learned that. Following after Jesus is the most exhilarating kind of life. Amen? It is the most joyful life. 
It is the most hopeful life because we know that beyond the present trials and tests of this world, we will see our Lord Jesus in future glory. But it is spiritual warfare, isn't it? There are ups and downs here in this world. There are trials and tests that we experience. And so what can we learn from this interaction of Jesus with his disciples? This is an amazing passage about true discipleship and that journey that the disciples are on. That's ultimately going to lead them to be so, um, so strategic in the life of the early church. These guys are going to turn the world upside down in the early church. But this is part of their journey here. What can we learn from them? I want you to notice first the troubling revelation. There's a troubling revelation in verse 27. Jesus reveals something to these disciples that is troubling. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. This is so significant, brothers and sisters. What Jesus reveals here, it is so important that, listen, all four Gospels record this revelation given to Peter and the disciples. All four of them that record this. Now, Mark and Matthew placed this revelation on the way to Gethsemane. Luke and John recorded as, as given in the upper room. So how do we harmonize that? And I think the way that we harmonize that is that most likely there were two different times that Jesus warned them about this. In the upper room and then on the way to Gethsemane as here. And so this is so, so important for us to keep in mind what he reveals here. Now in Mark's case, he simply cuts to the chase. In typical fashion, you will all fall away. That terminology there, fall away, that's the Greek word, skandalizomai. Sound familiar? That's the word from which we get the word scandal. Scandal. It means to be, to be caused to stumble, to fall. Not by Jesus himself will they be caused to stumble, but by the circumstances, the coming events of Jesus' suffering of his death. In other words, Jesus' moment of testing by means of his suffering and his death will become the greatest moment of testing for Jesus' followers to this point. Now, Jesus is not speaking here about an outright rebellion by the disciples. He's also not talking about some permanent loss of their, their faith, that they defect in a sense that they, that they lose their faith and they cease permanently to follow after Jesus. What he means is that his circumstances will lead to their serious but temporary struggling. That as they watch the events of his suffering and his betrayal and his trial and all of that, their fidelity and their loyalty to him will be put to the test. And we see that as the narrative unfolds. You know, I, I couldn't help brothers and sisters. I just keep thinking about this particular passage and how this is such a microcosm of the testing that we all go through as disciples of Christ, as followers of Christ. Amen? I can identify with what happens here. Yes, this is unique in a certain way, in a certain sense. But this is, a, this is what we experience even as followers of Christ ourselves. On this journey of the Christian life, we experience tests daily, don't we? Daily we experience these tests which, which challenge us to the core of who we are. Perhaps a, a struggling marriage situation. A difficult marriage situation or a parenting situation with a, a child, a wayward child. More than anything, family trials test us to the core of who we are, right? Whether we will continue to be faithful and just trust God for the results. Or maybe for you, it's the, the test of a loss of a job or, or financial strain, especially over the last year to a year and a half. We are tested in our discipleship, in our following of Jesus. Perhaps some of you are even watching online right now. And you're being tested in the area of physical sickness. You feel so fragile and you keep getting sick over and over again. The Lord tests, is testing your faith through that. Maybe there's the emotional testing or the spiritual health that we lack right now. 
There are all kinds of tests and ways that we are challenged to at the core of who we are. Maybe the current events of our world challenge yours and I's fidelity to whether we will trust God and we will know that He's going to keep His promises to us as revealed in His Word in the midst of all the craziness that we see around us. See, these and many other realities become real trials, real tests in how we will respond. Well, this is a key moment of testing in the lives of Jesus' disciples. You disciples will be challenged. You're going to struggle. Temporarily, you will stumble over what's about to happen to me. And notice, in verse 27, this will happen to all of them without exception. You will all fall away. You will all be caused to stumble without exception. Jesus is very clear about this. And he's spoken about it again back in the upper room. There's this ongoing conversation. And now he's reiterating that on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, once again, none of this is taking Jesus by surprise or will take Jesus by surprise. That temporary walking away from the disciples. Jesus both knows all things because he is God. But he also understands that all of this is happening according to God's timetable, right? Look at verse 27. You will all fall away. Read it with me. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In other words, they will all fall away because this is precisely what was prophesied in Holy Scripture. This is exactly what God said would come. Jesus is never taken by surprise in any of these things. See how that Those words there, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. They appear in all caps. That means that that's a quotation from the Old Testament. Specifically, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. But when Jesus quotes this here in Mark, Jesus specifies who it is that will strike down the shepherd. Namely, God himself. I will strike down the shepherd. That's God the Father speaking there. It is God himself who will strike Jesus, putting him to grief, as Isaiah chapter 53 says. The Lord was pleased to crush him, to crush his son, Jesus, the future Messiah, Isaiah 53 says, putting him to grief. And what's going to happen when the shepherd, Jesus, is suffers? The sheep will be scattered, the text says. The sheep will be scattered. I was once watching these YouTube videos of shepherds and sheep just trying to understand shepherdology, right? And that beautiful metaphor that God gives us. I was just watching these videos because I've never had an opportunity to go out there and do maybe like a summer vacation shepherding sheep, you know? I've heard that that's not very fun from some of my buddies, Kiwis in particular, New Zealanders. But you learn a lot. And those images and pictures and experiences of them having shepherded in those open pastures in these particular places was so useful to them. But one of the things I noticed on these YouTube videos was specifically what struck me is what happens when the shepherd was not in the sight of the sheep. I mean, it is chaos. They look confused. They look dazed. Those sheep, those animals look aimless because they cannot see the shepherd. They might as well just drop dead right there. They're useless, right? Have no direction, no sense of protection anymore. And brothers and sisters, this is the picture of the disciples in the near future. What will happen to them when God strikes the shepherd? In fulfillment of Holy Scripture, this is what was always to take place. And so Jesus knows that they all will abandon him. And listen, if they were really thinking spiritually in that moment, this knowledge of Christ that he knows about their weaknesses should have encouraged his disciples. But it didn't at the moment. Eventually it did, as they would probably reminisce about all that transpired during this time. But listen, it should certainly encourage us, right? The knowledge of Christ should certainly encourage you and I as followers of Jesus. What in particular? That Jesus knows your weakness. That Jesus knows my propensity towards failure. That Jesus knows that we're prone to go astray. That we're prone to lose perspective. That we're prone to to struggle even with besetting sins and trials and not respond the way that we should to our trials. 
Listen to me this morning, brother and sister in Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus, he's your Lord. He's your Savior. Your precious Savior knows your weaknesses, your vulnerabilities, your proneness to failure. He knows. He knows you. You don't need to put on a facade with Christ. You don't need to pretend that you are perfect with him. He knows your heart as he knew the disciples' heart. He knows. It's like life in the home, right? When you get to your house, what do you do today, later on? You let your hair down, right? Now, you shouldn't let your hair down in the sense of sinning against each other. That's a corrupt kind of letting your hair down. But you let your hair down. It's home. Everybody's comfortable around one another. You don't need to put on a facade in front of your family, in front of your spouse. You learn to love one another and understand each other's weaknesses and strengths. You don't need to pretend. How much more with our good and faithful shepherd, King Jesus? Amen? How much more with Him? And it's in our greatest moments of of weakness that we need, like Jesus' disciples, to be reminded of His strength. Amen? To be reminded of Christ's strength. Strength. One of my favorite texts in all of the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul, reminiscing about his trials and tests, says, you know what? I have this, this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. A demon? We don't know. That was tormenting Paul. Some physical illness? We don't know. And Paul says, I've continued to ask God to take it away. And his answer is, no, Paul. He says, and Paul expresses thankfulness. He says, you know what? He didn't take it away, but I've learned a lesson that Jesus' power is perfected in my weakness, right? Nevertheless, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may be perfected in me. That's what God, through that trial, through that thorn in the flesh, was doing in the life of Paul, showing him his strength, Christ's strength in the midst of Paul's weakness. Well, along those lines... Consider, second, the consoling promise, because that's what Jesus does here for his disciples in verse 28. And this consoling promise, after the troubling revelation concerning their coming failure, the Lord Jesus, listen, reminds his disciples of where, or better, in whom their hope resides. Namely, in him. Look at verse 28. This is so significant, brothers and sisters. Don't miss what Jesus says here in verse 28. But after I have been raised, says Jesus, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Why does he say this after having revealed to them their upcoming impending failure? Not only Peter, but the rest of the disciples, they would all be caused to stumble. Why does Jesus do this in particular? Why bring this up yet again? I'll tell you, they are facing his impending death. They are feeling the weight of that as his followers. On top of that, he's just revealed their their weakness and failure to them that they will all abandon him. And this can have the effect of causing them to feel pretty much down in the dumps, right? Maybe discouraging or perhaps even for them to feel a sense of utter hopelessness and a sense of despair. And they were certainly experience some of that in the very near future as they watch him suffer. But what a shepherd Jesus is. He doesn't leave them there, does he? He doesn't leave them there. Jesus consoles them with a sure promise. You may fail me in the darkest hour of my suffering, but by stark contrast, I will not fail you. I love that. I will be raised from the dead. I will be victorious over sin and death. I will meet you again in Galilee where we once walked together. We'll be reunited. Oh, isn't this our greatest comfort to beloved? As believers in Christ, our greatest consolation is that one day, even in the midst of all that we see happening around us, in the midst of our failures, day by day, moment by moment, in our weakness, one day we will see Jesus and be reunited with Him. We will see Him again. Like that wonderful song, Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Amen? Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. 
and life is worth the living just because he lives. It excites me so much. I want to sing it right now. Maybe we turn the, you know. I'll let Ian decide that. There's hope in the resurrection, right? Jesus says we will, will be reunited. We will, be, we will come back together again. And listen, the reason why he talks about the resurrection is because he's going to the cross and then rise from the dead to procure for them, by virtue of his resurrection, that reunion. So that they will be with him again. He's been telling them repeatedly, I will rise again. In fact, go with me to chapter 8 and verse 31. Look at this. Chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus has been repeatedly talking about his resurrection and they're missing it. They're not focusing on that. 8.31, and he began, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And here it is. And after three days, what? Rise again. Look at chapter 9 and verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will what, beloved? Rise three days later. Look at chapter 10 and verse 33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, namely Christ, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will what? Rise again. He has been repeatedly telling them, I will rise. Why has he been telling them this? Because the resurrection is not only their hope, but the hope of every believer who's put their faith in King Jesus. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have hope, brothers and sisters. Jesus' resurrection proved that God is true and he is no liar in having declared his son with power as his only begotten son. The resurrection proved that. Not only that, but the resurrection vindicated. Listen, vindicated the just, righteous character of God in that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice alone for payment for sins. Only Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. Only Christ's sacrifice is enough. There's no other way to be saved except putting your faith in the sacrifice alone of King Jesus, who scored a perfect 10 on behalf of sinners. Amen? The resurrection proved that. The resurrection, furthermore, displayed Jesus' victory over sin and death. So that not only are we rescued from the penalty of our sin, but from the present power of sin over us. If we are living in sin as believers, it's because we are choosing to live in sin. Because He's rescued us from the power of sin, from the grip of sin by virtue of His resurrection. And in Christ now, we have the Spirit of God who helps us and teaches us by His grace to overcome sin. Furthermore, the resurrection proved the truthfulness of Jesus. Jesus, that like we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, He is indeed, as He's saying again and again through His words and His works, I am God's eternal Son. The resurrection proved that when Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection is our hope. Our hope that we will one day be reunited with Christ, that because Jesus lives, brother and sister, we will live with Him as well. Amen? That's what Jesus is doing in verse 28. Now listen, at the present time, their thoughts, the thoughts of these disciples are neither focused on this great event, nor do they understand the full significance of His resurrection. But later on, after Jesus rises from the dead, oh, what a difference it would make. They were going to be opposed and persecuted and ridiculed and embarrassed and laughed at and mocked at. And they would continually be reminded of, you know what? Jesus rose. He's at the right hand of the Father. One day he's coming back. All we need to do is just be faithful. We will be reunited with him. Wow. What consoling words. What a comforting promise from the great shepherd in contrast to their weakness. And I pray that this might be the same for us. But these would be consoling words for us because we too in the midst of unprecedented times need the same reminder of our hope in King Jesus. Amen? We need that as well. That though we are weak, He is strong. That though we often fail, 
are vulnerable in life with so many things, Jesus is strong. You see, like the disciples, we too stray from our great shepherd, don't we? We stray from him. And he brings us back daily by his grace. Can you say an amen to that? I'm so thankful for my good shepherd. First Peter chapter 2, verse 25 says, For you, Christian, beloved of God in Christ, for you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. That was true at conversion. That is true as you walk the Christian life. We stray from him all the time. But he's the good shepherd who always draws us back. He's the good shepherd who loses none of his sheep. In fact, it was in the upper room in John chapter 17 and verse 12 that Jesus prays to the Father and he says this, While I was with them, with his disciples, I was keeping them in your name, in his Father's name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Why? So that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus says, I lost not one of your sheep. I lost not one of my sheep. How consoling and comforting for followers of Christ. This is the case for any of us who belong to to Jesus. Jesus loses none of his sheep. Even in our greatest moments of weakness, he is our loving shepherd who provides for us and protects us and guards us and cares for us and intercedes for us and leads us every step of the way. Amen, brothers and sisters? It's like that wonderful song of old, one of my all-time favorites, that Jesus says of Christ, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us. For our use thy folds prepare. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast bought us, thine we are. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast bought us, thine we are. What a wonderful, consoling song, amen? Reflect the words of in the heart of Christ and his sure promises that one day we will be with him. And as we await that, he constantly guides us and leads us and protects us as our good shepherd. One pastor comments, quote, when God raised Jesus from the dead, He was making a promise to us, a promise that gives us unshakable hope that regardless of our circumstances or tests, that everything he has told us he will do is absolutely true. He will keep his word. Amen and amen. And so even though they will display great weakness, he says, I will go before you. I will rise again. We will be reunited yet again in that place where we walked before. You will see me again. We will be together. And listen, if Peter and the others would just get this, what a difference it would make. But he is not thinking, Peter, as a spokesman for the rest, they're not thinking about that right now, are they? It's almost as if he bypasses Jesus' words in verse 28. And notice, third, the hasty objection. Notice this in verse 29. Instead of hearing Jesus' comforting, consoling promise and humbling himself, Peter does the stark opposite. Verse 29. But Peter said to Jesus, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. The structure there in the Greek is emphatic, emphasizing I will be the exception. Everyone may fail. I will not. Whoa, what's up with Pete here? What's up with him? Now listen, we can come down pretty hard on Peter as we read these words. On the one hand, this is his honest declaration of loyalty to Jesus. Wouldn't we do the same? Lord, I will never leave you. How could you even say that? Heaven forbid, Lord. We would all express the same thing. I will be by your side. I think Peter means this. I think he really means this. On the other hand, did you catch the problem with his statement? Did you catch it? He directly, explicitly contradicts Jesus' words, Jesus' prediction concerning what is to, to take place. And by the way, Jesus has been talking about this. Remember, since the upper room, talking about failure. I mean, if there's one thing that Peter 
should have learned already in three and a half years of walking with Jesus is that Jesus' word always comes to pass, always comes true without exception or fail. Amen? Always. Should have known that. And as I said, Peter has had plenty of time this particular night over a long hours and hours Passover meal to wise up and be humble and be teachable and to listen to what Jesus is saying here. He said enough time. It's not like this is the first time that this has been revealed to Peter and to the others about failures to come. Back in John chapter 13, verse 21, in the upper room during the Passover meal, just hours before this, it says, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified saying, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. See, we've already been talking about failures of individuals in there. And then in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, Peter, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, this is in the upper room, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I, said to you, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Look, this, is, this happened in the upper room hours before. We don't know the specific time frames, but we know that there's two different times when this took place. Peter has had enough time to process this. And the point being that obviously this isn't the first time about these kinds of issues regarding failure to Peter and the others. But listen, Peter's pride is a blinding kind of pride, isn't it? It's a blinding kind of pride. It's a pride that caused him to dig in his heels in self-denial instead of softening his heart to Jesus' word. That's what's taking place here. And what Jesus is exposing through this test, even in the hearts of his disciples... One pastor comments the following, quote, Although there was genuine love for Christ behind Peter's protest, it revealed his sad ignorance of his own weakness. With his boast, Peter arrogantly elevated himself above the other disciples. This is one of the most unfavorable specimens on record of the dark or weak side of this great apostle's character because it exhibits not mere self-sufficiency and overweening self-reliance, but an arrogant estimate of his own strength in comparison with others, end quote. So true. That's what pride does. It is blinding. Proud people do not have a right assessment of themselves. Proud people are always comparing themselves to other people rather than viewing themselves rightly in the light of the holiness and the majesty and the greatness of God. And then we are brought very low, right? To a lowly perspective, to thinking rightly of ourselves. Because we're no longer measuring ourselves in comparison with others, but in the light of the holiness of God. And who are we? By the grace of God, His children. But not because we are worthy. We are weak. And so not only was Peter here being proud by indirectly contradicting Christ's word, but, but his response is also an indirect slap to the face of his fellow disciples, right? It's as if Peter expects them to fail in comparison to, to himself. Not a chance, Lord. Not a chance. These guys over here, they will let you down, but I will never let you down. I will be the exception to the norm. When they fall, I'll stand. Pride. Pride. It's so subtle. As my friend once said jokingly, be careful with pride. Pride is like bad breath. Everyone knows that you have it except you. <laughs> that's pretty true, isn't it? Amen? Man, that's true. Pride is so subtle. What do we do? When God, through His Word, exposes something in our lives, or others come to us, maybe a spouse, maybe a brother or sister in the Lord in the context of the church, they come to us and they bring something that they're concerned about before us and they lay it in our lap, what do we tend to do? What do we do? 
Instead of humbling ourselves, confessing our sin, seeking forgiveness and renewal at the foot of the cross, what do we do, brothers and sisters? We dig in our heels. We become even more proud. We get defensive. We downplay sin. Well, you know, there are all kinds of extenuating circumstances there. Now, there are all kinds of things that cause me to do that. Well, you know, that's just, that's just my personality and the way that I tend to be. Well, you know, no one is perfect. Or who, do you, who are you to judge? Have you reached perfection yet? Man, over the years, I'll tell you what, as a brother in the Lord and as a pastor, I've heard those and an array of other excuses of downplaying sin in pride. And I've used some of those, right? We all have to some extent or another. Maybe not that explicitly, but we can all struggle with this. Or we blame shift. Just blame shift. Perhaps we even go on the attack against others to make ourselves look better like Peter does here indirectly towards his fellow disciples. These and many others are forms of pride, brothers and sisters, that we can struggle with. Well, I'm so thankful that gracious Jesus won't leave Peter abandoned in his pride. This test has, a, has the function of humbling Peter and the rest of the disciples. And there will be a big time humbling coming up, right? With Peter. As Jesus' words come to be true. And yet, in the midst of this, hear me. If you hear anything about this message. In the midst of this weakness that Peter shows and the rest of the disciples shows, we know how the story ends in the, in, the, in the book of John, right? As far as Peter's interaction with Jesus. Jesus graciously restores Peter, and Peter is catapulted to be used mightily by Christ to shepherd his people because he came around to now recognize, I need to love Christ. My love for Jesus is deficient. But Jesus came alongside of him to show him that through this test on his journey. And now he's going to be greatly used of the Lord and the other disciples as well. That's not so comforting for us who are so beset with weakness and failure. But of course, before that, Peter is tested. He would experience what Proverbs 16, 18 says happens to the proud. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Thankfully, Peter wouldn't be destroyed. He was a child of God, but he was sure humbled by the Lord. He was brought low by his own sin, right? And it's the same for us, beloved. The same for us. Again, this is a microcosm, a unique situation, but a microcosm of our experience in this Christian journey before the Lord. God wants to use us. He wants to use you and I, not because we deserve it, not because we're all that in a bag of chips. We're nothing, right? He wants to use us, but we must walk in humility, in lowliness of mind, in the light of the majesty of God. And so what will he do? He will discipline us as his children. He will bring those tests as a sort of spiritual spanking from time to time. And he will do that because he loves us. Because he's gracious. Because leaving us in our sin, leaving us in our weakness is also not the answer. He wants to make us more and more like himself, more and more like Christ. James 4, 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's military terminology, by the way. God is opposed to the proud. God stands opposed in battle array like a divine warrior against the proud. Listen to me, even for Christians, even though we won't lose our salvation, even though we are his child, God is not presently on your side if you're digging in your heels, walking in pride, believer. Whether in your marriage, whether in your parenting, whether in a work environment and you're disobeying the Lord in that environment, maybe being dishonest and walking in pride in that, maybe in the context of the church in interpersonal relationships. Whenever we walk in pride, God stands in battle array like a divine warrior against us, against the proud. Same in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. God is opposed to the proud, but, listen to this, gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. By contrast, if you humble yourself, if you acknowledge your sin, Christian, 
You and I, if we seek God's forgiveness and restoration and renewal, Jesus lavishes His grace upon us. He gives grace to the humble. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. How countercultural, huh? In the world, it's completely the opposite. People want to elevate themselves, stepping on others in the process of doing that. Exalt themselves, elevate themselves. Jesus says, you humble yourself, God will exalt you at the proper time. He will do that. In Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2, go back and listen to that message. Of Isaiah 66 and verse 2, God speaks and he says, For to this one, to this person, I will look. And the sense there is, to this one, I will look with favor upon. My blessing, in other words, is upon what kind of person? To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the kind of person who's trusted in the Messiah, Isaiah 53, and who God continually looks upon, Isaiah 66, with favor upon. You're cultivating a heart of lowliness and humility and brokenness over your sin, and you tremble at the Word of God. You don't dismiss it and set it aside because of your own preferences or whatever. You submit to the Word of God and you obey Him, ultimately because of love and gratitude. God's blessing is upon the humble That's the kind of heart that Peter should have had as well as the others. Instead, they were suffering from the subtle disease of pride, right? A pride that overlooked their evident weakness and a pride that was competitive, measuring themselves to one another rather than to Christ himself, the King, the Lord, the majestic one ever before them. Listen to our friend and brother J.C. Ryle who comments, quote, Let us learn from this. Let us learn how to pray for humility. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. There is far more wickedness in all of our hearts than we know. We never can tell how far we might fall if once placed in temptation. There is no degree of sin into which the greatest saints may not run if not upheld by the grace of God. And if they do not watch and pray, the seeds of every wickedness lay hidden in our hearts. They only need a convenient time to spring up into a mischievous vitality. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Proverbs twenty eight twenty six. He who trusts in himself is a fool. For this reason, let our daily prayer be uphold me, O Lord Jesus, and I shall be delivered. End quote. Our awareness of our vulnerabilities, you see, and our weaknesses should lead us to greater dependence upon the Lord. Amen. May the Lord help us to do that. Consider fourth, the humbling correction. Here comes the humbling correction in verse 30. Unfortunately, at least at at this time, Peter would not humble himself. And so being the loving Savior that he is, our Lord corrects him in verse 30. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, Peter, that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself, emphatic, you yourself, Peter, like pointing his finger at him, will deny me three times. Not just once. You're going to do this three times. Boy, that should have hit Peter like a ton of bricks, right? Not only would Peter fail, but he would fail big time. Big. His failure would be immediate this very night before a rooster crows twice. In Jewish time, the 24-hour day began with sunset. So he says, during the time of darkness, before dawn, when that rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me, Peter. Not just once, but three times. His failure would be immediate. His failure would be explicit. That word deny there is a compound word in the Greek made up of two words, which intensifies the nature of this denial. It means you will deny me fully. You will deny me wholly. You will deny me utterly. You will deny me, you might say, to the max, Peter. Man. His failure would be sure. Sure. As sure as Christ is, his word is sure. So his failure would be sure. Look with me ahead in Mark chapter 14 and verse 66. Almost to the T, right? Not almost. As Peter, verse 66, was below in the courtyard, this would have been the home of the high priest, 
one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, he's there by stealth, hiding, right? She looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. Verse 68, but he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. He goes to a different location. Maybe they won't bother me there. Verse 69, that servant girl is after him, right? Strike one already. The servant girl, verse 69, saw Peter and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. Now she's getting all her friends like, hey, this guy's one of the followers of that mutinous man, Jesus. Verse 70, but again he denied it. Strike two. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. And notice this, verse 71, but he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. Strike three. And immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to what? To weep. Censors weep bitterly. Weep bitterly. Wow. Just hours later, beloved, Jesus' prophetic words regarding Peter came true because you see, no matter how much we may dig in our heels in whatever capacity or another, Christ will have the final word. Amen? And that should be a great comfort and encouragement to us. There's peace in that. That Christ will have the final word. Christ's word will come to pass, as in this case here. But even after Jesus says this, Peter does not let up. Lastly, look at the proud resistance in verse 31. I mean, this guy's just on it, isn't he? Verse 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. It's an imperfect tense verb there. Peter was continually saying this. And he was insistent about it, which means vehemently saying this. Beyond the normal bounds of communication, he was going overboard, in other words, to make his point, I will not deny you, Jesus. This ain't going to happen. doesn't matter what you say. That's not going to happen to me. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Even if it means death, I will not deny you. I will never turn my back on you. Again, it's his honest well-intentioned statement, but short-sighted, superficial, and ultimately he was undermining the word of Christ, right? But did you glean again where Peter went wrong in another sense? His response should have, and of course we have the luxury of looking at this in retrospect and dissecting it and all of that, but Peter should have said something along these lines, Or with this kind of an attitude, Lord, this is hard, what you're telling us. From a human perspective, I don't know that I would ever do that to you. But if you are saying this, then it's true. What can I do to make sure that this doesn't happen? Lord, please, what do you see in my life in the three and a half years that you've been with me and we've been through thick and thin together and I've watched your example and I've heard your words. What can I do? What can I do to make sure this doesn't happen? That should have been his heart expression. Unfortunately, at this moment, this is not Peter's attitude or his heart response. Mark it. Jesus' word did not lead Peter and the others to humble self-examination. In fact, it led to the exact opposite. Yet again, Peter directly and in front of the other disciples, the other ten, directly contradicts Jesus' words. I mean, he's putting Jesus on the spot here. And please notice at the end of verse 31, and they all were saying the same thing also. Peter wasn't the only proud one. He was merely the the spokesman who this whole time is representing the general sentiments of the rest of the ten. Minus Judas Iscariot, who's out betraying our Lord already. We're going to be loyal to Jesus to the very end, even if we have to die, we won't turn back. We will lay down our very life for you. Boy, I got to tell you, 
Though nothing compared to the uniqueness of this and to the, this level of, of pressure, how many times, beloved, have we not shared the same kind of heart sentiment? Lord, I'm all in in the Christian life as I'm following you. I'm absolutely committed to you. Come what may come. I am not ashamed of you. I am not ashamed of the gospel, which reveals the person and the work of Jesus. And then the Lord puts a family member in our path so that we might live Christ before them, that we might share Jesus with them, maybe a neighbor close to you in your context, wherever you live, maybe a co-worker. The Lord puts people on our path to share the hope of Christ with them. And what do we do? We're ashamed of Christ. Ashamed of His name. We're ashamed of Christ by not speaking the truth of the gospel. It's not just what we do, it's what we don't do in obedience to the Lord, right? It's not only sins of commission, it's sins of omission when we don't obey the Lord in even fulfilling the Great Commission. We are ashamed of Him, functionally speaking. We succumb to the fear of man, which brings a snare instead of fearing God and standing up for Christ. But the true disciple is not ashamed of Christ, not ashamed of the gospel. You remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 38? For whoever is ashamed of me... And my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, namely Christ, will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Jesus says, you want to know what it means to follow me? Part and parcel of this is that you will not be ashamed of me, or one day I will be ashamed of you in final glory. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How many of us can say that this morning? Can you say this morning, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the good news who is Christ, His person and His work on the cross for sinners and His resurrection and His ascension and He's sitting at the right hand of God in His return. I'm not ashamed of that message. My conviction, how many of us can say, my conviction, I'm willing to die for this, is that the gospel can save lives so you humbly and boldly share Jesus. You're not ashamed of King Jesus who gave His life for you. Paul was not ashamed of Christ in a polytheistic society like the Greco-Roman Empire. Polytheistic, a many-god society like that. No, he knew what the gospel could do. He knew that it's the, the, the power of God unto salvation. He knew that the gospel had the power to save sinners. And listen to me, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, he has the power more than able to save you no matter what you've done. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you cannot save yourself by your works of righteousness, which you've done. Those are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. The only satisfying sacrifice that God has accepted already is the sacrifice of His only begotten Son on the cross, Jesus Christ, who took the wrath of God for our sins and rebellion upon Himself and rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. Put your faith in Him. Confess Him as your Lord and Savior. Paul was not ashamed of that gospel. Neither should we. Just look at your own life for crying out loud. Would you be here if it were up to you in your natural state? Absolutely not. It was a miracle of God in the human heart. But he used means, namely somebody who shared the message of the gospel with you, right? Wonderful tidings of great joy that somebody came and said, Hey, have you heard about this Jesus? About Christ, my Lord? Let me tell you about him. We should not be ashamed of Christ. Well, did Peter eventually learn his lesson, brother and sisters? Thankfully, he did. We'll look later at how gracious Jesus dealt with him and the others post his resurrection. Christ loves us. Amen? He loves us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But listen, he will allow us to go through testing because he is good, that we might see our sin, that we might confess our sin, and that we might grow in our love for him. I close with our friend J.C. Ryle. Though he is now with the Lord, yet still he speaks, right? Listen to this quote. Let us take comfort in the thought that the Lord Jesus does not grow, does not throw off his believing people because of failures and imperfections. He knows what we are. He takes us as the husband takes his wife. 
with all their blemishes and defects, and once joined to him by faith, will never put them away. Christ is a merciful and compassionate high priest. It is his glory to pass over the transgressions of his people and to cover their many sins. He knew what they were before conversion, wicked, guilty, and defiled, yet he loved them. He knows what they will be after their conversion, weak, erring, and frail, yet he loves them. Us. He has undertaken to save them, notwithstanding all their shortcomings. And what he has undertaken, he will perform. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our trials. Thank you for the tests you allow in our lives so that you might draw us nearer to yourself. Help us to learn to trust you. Help us to have greater faith in you by your grace. Deepen our love for you through our trials and tests. Help us to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing because we know from experience that the testing of our faith produces endurance. You want to use us, but you will humble us and break us. Father, help us to embrace this by your grace. We thank you for that grace, that even though we are weak and frail, you are strong always. Humble us. Humble us that we might be useful vessels for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.